Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live at the southern border as the U.S. and Mexico hold crisis talks on the migrant surge into the United States. We'll get an update on the high-level meeting still underway and the growing pressure on President Biden to take action. Also this hour, the Michigan Supreme Court rejecting a bid to remove Donald Trump from the primary ballot under the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban will break down the decision and how it differs from the Colorado High Court ruling that did bar Trump from that state's ballot. Plus, CNN investigating the shadowy world of dogfighting. Our crew rode along for a federal crackdown on the blood sport that's thriving across the country. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. Wolf Blitzer is off today. I'm Caitlin Collins, and you're in the Situation Room. And we begin tonight with those urgent border security talks underway in Mexico at this hour. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas are pressing Mexico's president to stem the migrant surge into the U.S. CNN's Rosa Flores is following it all. She's at a critical border crossing in Texas. Rosa, what do we know about how these talks have been progressing, given what you're seeing, the state of the migrant crisis on the ground right now? Well, Caitlin, no question the state of the migrant crisis here is that this is an unprecedented crisis, not just by the number of apprehensions, but by the length of this crisis. It has been weeks. Now, individuals, residents here in Eagle Pass, where I am, they have high hopes for the talks that are happening in Mexico City between uh, um, top officials from the White House and Mexico's president. But because Texas Governor Greg Abbott has taken immigration matters into his own hands, some here also wish that Governor Abbott had a seat at the table. As border authorities near a breaking point from the weeks-long migrant surge, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas meet with Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador in Mexico City to discuss ways to drive down the unprecedented number of illegal migrant crossings. The seven-day average earlier this month, 9,600. Blinken and Mallorcas are expected to ask Mexico to move migrants south, control railways that are used by migrants to move north, and provide migrants incentives to stay in Mexico like visas. In Eagle Pass, Texas, although migrant apprehensions dropped from about 3,000 daily encounters last week to about 2,000 Monday, according to a law enforcement source, one of two international bridges are still closed to vehicle traffic to redirect personnel to process migrants. The wait time to cross by car Wednesday afternoon, an astounding 15 hours. Many Americans who frequently drive back and forth are opting to cross on foot. She says that when she ditched her car in Mexico, she saw a group of about 100 migrants walking towards Eagle Pass, some with children. One Eagle Pass business owner says the migrant surge is tearing the community apart. I can tell that tempers are flaring everywhere you go. That's why I'm hoping that there is a peaceful resolution to this crisis. Would you like to see President Biden visit Eagle Pass? I would. 
Very much so. Texas State Representative Eddie Morales, a Democrat who represents residents from 11 West Texas counties along the state's border with Mexico, says the federal government's ongoing closure of the bridge and the recent five-day closure of the International Railway cost the U.S. economy hundreds of millions of dollars. Everyday Texans are the ones that end up suffering. Morales says he's hopeful that the top-level talks in Mexico City will pave the way for realistic change at the border, but says he would have liked to see Texas Governor Greg Abbott have a seat at the table. We're only going to get there if there's communication between these two countries and also with the state of Texas. Texas recently passed its own immigration bill and has come under fire for Abbott's border security tactics like busing and flying migrants to blue states, separating migrant families and deploying controversial border buoys and concertina wire. Morales initially supported Abbott's border security push, which has cost billions of dollars, but now says those efforts have fallen short. We have nothing positive to show to our taxpayers for the amount of money that we've invested. Now, as these top-level talks in Mexico wrap up later tonight, one of the things that I'm going to be looking for, Caitlin, is Mexico. What is happening in Mexico? Now, you can see it over my shoulder. Will Mexican military start showing up on the border? Will the law enforcement posture change? Those will be some of the first signs that we will see here on the ground that those talks are working. Caitlin? Yeah. Those are all good things, good questions, and things we'll be watching closely. Rosa Flores, stand by, because we'll get back to you in just a moment. But also on these talks that are underway between the United States and Mexico, I want to get more on that and the crisis that is playing out at the border. CNN's senior White House reporter Kevin Liptak is traveling with President Biden, spending the holidays in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Kevin, I think a big question is, what is the White House hoping to get out of this meeting that's underway? Yeah, and I think the fact that President Biden dispatched this high-level delegation, and these are cabinet-level officials, does show you that the White House is very urgently looking for solutions to this crisis. And the sense among administration officials is that more can and needs to be done on the diplomatic front to curb these flows of migrants. Ultimately, this is an issue that has dogged President Biden for almost his entire presidency, and his aides do realize that this will be a potent issue at the center of next year's 2024 presidential election. But at the the end of the day, President Biden is, is in something of a bind here. On one side, he's under intense pressure from Republicans, but also some Democrats, mayors, governors, to do more to stem the flow of migrants that are coming across the border and ending up in some blue cities like Chicago and New York. But on the other side, you have progressives, immigration advocates who worry about some of the changes that are being discussed to immigration law, things like toughening up asylum rules, making it easier uh, to, uh, to enact deportations could amount to some of the most restrictive policies that were in place under former President Trump. What Biden's campaign thinks is that once this election gets underway, once voters begin tuning in, that this distinguish, the voters will be able to distinguish between those two candidates. And what they say is a dehumanizing policy under President Trump. And you saw them seize so quickly on his remark that immigrants were poisoning the blood of the country, saying that it likened uh, to Nazi-era Germany. At the end of the day, this is an issue that both sides seem to agree can only be resolved through Congress. It is a broken system, and if the, these scenes at the border are to re be resolved in any way, they will have to change the rules up on Capitol Hill, Caitlin. 
Kevin Liptak traveling with President Biden. Thank you for that report. I want to bring back in Rosa Flores, who is at the border, like I said, along with CNN political commentator Kate Bedingfield and former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent. Kate, obviously you used to work for President Biden very closely. He's dispatching these top officials to Mexico as he's been taking that heat that Kevin noted there from progressives who are worried that he may be prepared to make big concessions, significant ones to Republicans who, who want these strict changes, immigration changes in this stalled aid bill that's on Capitol Hill right now. I mean, given how closely you worked with him, how do you think that he should be handling the situation at the border right now? Well, it's certainly true that sending uh, cabinet level officials to these talks is an indicator of how seriously he takes this. And I can tell you, you know, I spent the first two years of the Biden administration uh, in the White House as communications director. I can tell you an enormous amount of time uh, was spent on these issues. Uh, that's obviously complex. And, you know, President Biden put in place changes that did have an impact on the flow of migrants. We made uh, changes, some changes to the asylum process and some changes that uh, forced people to make it harder to come in illegally and directed people toward uh, more legal pathways. Now, obviously, uh, that's not enough. Uh, and I think President Biden would say that's not enough. I think the way that uh, he and, and the White House need to be handling this is, is to really shine a spotlight on uh, Republicans in Congress. I mean, the president put forward billions of proposed uh, sp additional spending to curb the flow of migration in the October supplemental. Uh, and you now have uh, House Republicans standing on H.R. 2, which is a bill that would essentially reinstitute family separation uh, and some of the most egregious uh, uh, pieces of the Trump uh, regime in dealing with immigration. Uh, you know, what, the, what President Biden has done is put forward uh, meaningful changes that will have an impact uh, on, the, on the flow of migrants. Um, but, you know, it's House Republicans in many ways who are, uh, you know, unwilling, I would imagine, we'll see, but are unwilling to give President Biden a win on this coming into an election year. So I have a hard time believing that these negotiations that are happening on the Hill right now are happening in good faith, because, again, I just don't think Republicans are going to view it as in their interest to give Biden a win. But the president needs to keep showing that he's pushing, that he's trying to get this done and really call out Republicans for standing in the way on making some of these changes. Well, Charlie, former congressman, former House Republican, what do you make uh, of that? Because given you know what we've heard from some Republicans on the Hill is they've said if President Biden did make a deal with them on immigration, which they're demanding in exchange to pass any more funding for Ukraine, that actually it would benefit him at the end, in the end. Because when you look at the poll numbers, I mean, even before this latest surge of migrants, his approval rating is at its lowest on immigration. So they kind of make the argument that even if he did agree with this and did go along with them on this, that it would actually be helping him in the end by, by going after one of his key weaknesses with voters. Well, of course. I mean, Joe Biden desperately needs a deal on the border. I just want to say something about this. Let's set aside the House of Representatives for a second. Much of the negotiations on the border are occurring in the Senate. Mitt Romney is helping lead those discussions with some others, and they need to get to a deal. Uh, Biden needs it because this fiasco is happening on his watch with nearly 10,000 migrants per day coming into the country. Most of these folks are economic migrants. They're not. Most of them are not legitimate asylum cases. They need to fix the asylum system. And so you know, you can put all this on the Republicans, but Biden needs to really get in the game. He's starting to now. And I think that's an important thing. But, but remember, too, Republicans also need a deal because 70 percent of Republicans, according to one Republican senator with whom I spoke a couple of weeks ago, said 70 percent of Republican voters don't want to do additional uh, Ukrainian aid. And so to the extent that there is a border agreement that helps Republicans support the broader um, foreign assistance package for Israel, Ukraine 
uh, and the Indo-Pacific. So both sides need a deal. And I think it's attainable. I get I understand there are some hard edges with H.R. 2, but there are components of H.R. 2, I suspect, that could be negotiated into a broader border deal. So it's incumbent upon everybody right now to get to that agreement and they have to do it fast. Yeah, I mean, they're nowhere close to it right now. We'll see if that changes when Congress is back on Capitol Hill. But Rosa, you just that report that we just saw there talking about what it looks like on the ground. I mean, you're in Eagle Pass, Texas. The mayor there was pretty blunt about his stance on this last night. Listen to what he said. Our city here in Eagle Pass, we've been getting slammed with two to three thousand people a day. And it's just an unfair, unethical situation. What's going on here in Eagle Pass? We feel ignored by the federal government. I mean, he was critical of President Biden there. What do officials on the ground, Rosa, want to see done? You know, some common themes that I've heard all along the border is that, first of all, they would like President Joe Biden to visit the border more. The people on the border really feel that if the president of the United States could get his eyes on the situation, could actually see that local law enforcement, sheriff's deputies are helping with this immigration crisis, and therefore they can't keep their community safe because of that, that the president would be paying more attention. Now, people on the border also are very smart. They know that President Biden can't do it alone. They would also like to see comprehensive immigration reform for Congress to actually do something about this. And then lastly, Caitlin, because I'm in Texas, the other thing that I hear a lot is that uh, people here would like to see more communication between the Biden administration and Texas Governor Greg Abbott. They don't talk and people would like for them to talk because Texas Governor Greg Abbott has taken the immigration issue into his own hands. Texas just passing an immigration bill. The controversial border buoys are just south of the river here to my right. So is the concertina wire uh, and all of those uh, legal issues that are caught up in court between the Biden administration and Texas. People here just really wish that they would sit down, talk, hash it out and figure it out so that uh, people on the border could see a solution to this critical crisis that keeps on going. Rosa Flores, Charlie Dent, Kate Bedingfield, thank you all for that. Coming up here on The Situation Room, Michigan has just weighed in on whether or not Donald Trump should be disqualified from running for president under the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. Why that state Supreme Court is saying no just days after Colorado's said yes. Also tonight, special counsel Jack Smith's new attempt to prevent Trump from spreading false information in court. That's right after a quick break. Tonight, there's a new legal victory for Donald Trump in Michigan. The state Supreme Court there rejecting a bid to remove him from the primary ballot under the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. CNN's chief legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed joins me now. Paula, obviously, the question here is the difference in between what is happening here in Michigan today, what happened in Colorado last week. Break down the decision that the Supreme Court in Michigan made here tonight. So the big question here is whether former President Trump can be removed from the ballot in Michigan because the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution bars any officials who engage in an insurrection from holding office in the future. This is a question we have seen litigated across several different states with differing outcomes. Now here in Michigan, the high court rejected this this issue. They didn't get into the larger constitutional questions. They declined to remove him from the primary ballot, joining other states, including Minnesota, Arizona and New Hampshire, in rejecting these attempts to remove Trump. But this is a contrast to what we saw last week in Colorado, 
where that state Supreme Court did opt to remove Trump from the ballot. And that was a big surprise because lower courts in that state had concluded that while he engaged in an insurrection, that this section of the 14th Amendment does not specifically say that it applies to presidents and therefore they were not going to remove him. Now, Trump is expected to appeal uh, that Colorado Supreme Court decision to the United States Supreme Court. And Caitlin, if they opt to weigh in, they could offer really the final word on exactly how far the 14th Amendment goes here. Yeah, I mean, all eyes are turning to the Supreme Court to decide what all of these states could have to do. And Paula, you know, as you've been monitoring the Trump legal beat here, uh, also today we got this filing from the special counsel, Jack Smith. This is when it comes to that election subversion case that is happening in in Washington, expected to happen in, in March, but to be determined at this moment. He seems to be laying out some pretty crucial parameters for what they want to see in this 2020 election trial, in this case, what this is going to look like. What exactly is Jack Smith asking for in here? What's remarkable here is this case is on pause. It is on hold. But here, the special counsel still uh, sending in filings, uh, requests to the court so that if they prevail in those appeals, that they can still hopefully get to trial uh, sometime this spring. And here, they are asking the court to limit uh, the defenses that former President Trump can use especially his argument that he is the, quote, victim of political persecution. Here, the special counsel asked the court to not allow him to turn the courtroom into a forum in which he propagates irrelevant disinformation and that the court should reject his attempt to inject politics into this proceeding. So in reading this filing, they're arguing that they don't want uh, the former president to be able to distract the jury with political arguments. They don't want them to be distracted from the facts of this case. Yeah, it's remarkable that they're still making those filings, even as everything is on hold. Paula, stay with us because I have more questions for you. But I also want to bring our other legal experts into the conversation. Norm Eisen, let me start with you on what happened here in Michigan today, this ruling that we saw. Because obviously there's a key difference between what happened in Michigan and the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. Is In Colorado, we saw an actual trial happen. We saw the facts put on display, Trump attorneys arguing in court, pushing back on it, and Trump's role in 2020. In Michigan, they tried to have a trial as well, but they were turned down by the courts. What do you make of this decision by the high court in Michigan today? Uh, Well, Caitlin, uh, uh, part of the unique characteristic of governance in America is that every state has slightly different laws on how they handle Uh, ballot qualification, both in the primary election and in the general. Colorado allows a determination under its state law of whether uh, an individual is eligible or not. Michigan decided for the primary that it did not have the leeway to block Trump, whether or not he's constitutionally disqualified under the 14th Amendment, prohibiting insurrectionists from serving on the ballot. The question is still open in Michigan as to the general election. And with Trump having been barred in Colorado, I think, uh, as you noted, we're going to see the Supreme Court weigh in and give everybody some guidance, likely. A Trump appeal in Colorado is almost certainly coming, and that will guide us all. Yeah, I mean, they basically said it's coming. But Shanwu, does this Michigan decision, if the Supreme Court does take this up, if they do, if the Trump team does appeal what happened in Colorado, how does what happened in Michigan today factor into the the Supreme Court and the way that they look at this? Well, I think Trump's team will need to broaden uh, what 
the Michigan issue is because on its face, it's not really in, co in contrast to Colorado because Colorado reached the merits of it. Um, Supreme Court will look at these merits, these constitutional questions, whether uh, the president can be disqualified with this kind of process, was he an insurrectionist, is he an officer of the United States. Michigan's taking this very narrow view, I think kind of silly, that says, you know, we can't decide this because it's only a party primary. I mean, if you put up a 12-year-old kid for the primary, would they say, oh, no, you know, hands off, we have to wait until the general election. So in that way, it's quite distinct. Like Norm was saying, all the states have different laws, and these are very subject to the individual state laws. And it's an interesting challenge for the Supreme Court. Do they want to try and unify on these sorts of very specific state questions or not? And they shouldn't. I mean, the states have control of their election laws, and, you know, let, <coughs> let 100 flowers bloom. <laughs> Paula, what do you make of that? I think it's a great point. I mean, look, as, as a constitutional nerd, I would love to see the Supreme Court take up this particular issue. And I think a lot of people would say, yes, the Supreme Court should take up this larger question of exactly how far does the 14th Amendment go? Because we right now, we have challenges pending in Oregon and Maine. And to get clarity, to get that final word on exactly what the 14th Amendment means, that would be enormously helpful going forward for all the parties involved. And today, former President Trump actually moved to try to get the Secretary of State in Maine recused from the Maine challenge. Now, one of the things that's just so interesting about Maine and the way they do this particular kind of a ballot challenge is that the Secretary of State is actually the first stop for questions on ballot eligibility which is why Trump is pushing to get her recused uh, in this process. Now, once a decision is made by the Secretary of State, that can then be appealed into the court process. But I think that's part of why we're seeing sort of this last minute effort to get her recused, sort of trying to make this argument in the court of public opinion that maybe there's some political influence here because they are specifically citing prior comments she had made about January 6th. But tonight, Caitlin, she is not responding and it's unlikely she's gonna recuse. Yeah, and Norm, we're obviously waiting to see um, what that decision in Maine is. But on the special counsel's election subversion case, it is basically on hold, as Paula noted, until the federal appeals court does weigh in on whether or not Trump has presidential immunity from any prosecution. But Jack Smith's team here is clearly trying to keep things on track for that March potential trial. I mean, what's the likelihood of that based on, on we're waiting for this decision to come out? Uh, well, I don't think we're going to see the case go on its uh, March 5th uh, schedule, Caitlin, but the appeal is moving fast. And if you had to guess, we're only uh, uh, guessing at this point, uh, probably a 60 to 90 day delay. Uh, the Jack Smith move, he said he was going to do it when he uh, uh, agreed to the stay. He's continuing to file his briefs and his motions like this motion to limit prejudicial evidence today because he wants everything to be queued back up. Donald Trump has a very tough argument on presidential immunity. No president has ever been held to be absolutely immune. When that argument is likely tossed out, Jack Smith wants to go back to the races. So we're looking at probably a late spring, early summer uh, uh, start for this trial. Shan, do you agree with that? Uh, I do. I, I think it's a tough one. It's it's a very small window, but I think it's still theoretically possible for the 
trial to go. And Smith's team is very wise to be pushing forward with these types of motions so that when the decision comes down, they will be ready to roll. There's not more delay in having to follow these kinds of motions. And this type of limiting motion is really important in the Trump case because he wants to bring in all these irrelevant non-evidence-based arguments about political persecution. And the judge should rule he can't do that. You can't just make up things in an argument like, you know, aliens actually did the murder when you haven't even presented a scintilla of evidence, you know, for that. So that's a smart move to try and control the trial. We'll see if it works out in the end. Thanks to you all, Shan Wu, Norm Eisen, Paula Reed. Up next, we'll go to the Middle East where we are getting new images that appear to show Palestinian men and young boys in Gaza stripped to their underwear while being detained by the IDF. More on those images in a moment. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. We're getting new video from Gaza, which appears to show Palestinian men and at least two young boys detained by the IDF who have been stripped down to their underwear. I want to warn our viewers, they may find these images that you're about to see disturbing. For more on this and what we are seeing here, CNN senior international correspondent Will Ripley joins us live from Tel Aviv. Will, what is the story? What have we heard? What is the IDF saying is behind these new pictures that we're seeing? So this uh, video was posted by an Israeli journalist on Christmas Eve, although we have no way to independently verify exactly when the video was taken. We did geolocate it to a stadium in northern Gaza. And as you can see uh, in these, you know, we blur their faces, but these are uh, uh, scores, dozens, it looks like, of men of various ages, including two children, at least two children. Uh, now, we've reached out to the IDF to ask for an explanation, about, particularly about the children, uh, and they have not uh, given us one as of yet, but in the past, uh, they've said that they strip people down because they need to check them for explosives, and actually, Caitlin, just within the last week or so, the IDF uh, released information. They said that when they were going house to house in Gaza, they actually found an explosive vest in, uh, along with a lot of other weapons in one of the civilian houses that they raided, and that explosive vest had apparently been modified for a child to wear. 
I mean, a disturbing development. Obviously, still a lot of questions about that. And, Will, as we talk about what is happening in Gaza and what the IDF is doing, I've heard from one source saying that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, who is in Mexico right now having meetings on immigration, is expected to travel to Israel next week. That would be his fifth trip to the Middle East, I believe, since October 7th. I mean, this is the U.S. has been attempting to kind of walk what is in kind of the understatement of the year, a diplomatic tightrope. It's been a very difficult issue for the White House to navigate. What are officials there on the ground saying about what is expected to happen next? Some could make the case that Israel and the U.S. are kind of walking farther and farther out on the ledge together because uh, the rest of the world's kind of looking at what's happening in Gaza and wondering why the U.S., publicly at least, has been so supportive uh, and steadfast behind its ally, its most important ally in this region, Israel. Uh, although Israel does make the argument that, you know, despite the rapidly rising civilian death toll of uh, more than 21,000, according to the Hamas-controlled health ministry, they say that they are acting in accordance with international law, that the targets they're striking are based on intelligence, intelligence that they're getting from suspected Hamas militants, like some of the people uh, that you probably saw in that shirtless video. Uh, they're interrogating everybody that they, that they capture, and they say that that's what's causing them to strike these particular areas where Hamas is deliberately planning itself uh, with civilians, within the civilian population, hoping that the death toll will rise so that it will just continue to humiliate and make Israel uh, just kind of the pariah uh, instead of Hamas, the terrorist organization that actually started this war back on October 7th when they slaughtered 1,200 uh, people. Um, but since then, of course, scores have died. The, the injuries are, you know, 55,000 plus. And, uh, the United States is going to pressure Israel uh, to find a way to go after the Hamas leadership and obtain those objectives without killing so many innocent civilians. Yeah, amid growing international pressure. Will Ripley in Tel Aviv, thank you. Meanwhile, to the other war that we've been following in Ukraine, the White House has announced a $250 million military aid package for Kyiv as the U.S. has been exhausting available funding. On the battlefield, Russia claims to be making progress as the Ukrainians are waiting, hoping that Congress and the U.S. will pass more assistance. CNN senior international correspondent Fred Pleitkin has the story. Russia's most recent claimed battlefield victory driving Ukrainian forces to the outskirts of Marinka on the Eastern Front. The prize, though, dust and rubble, as the vicious fighting has turned the town into a wasteland. Still, Russia's defense minister claiming this is significant progress for Moscow. The Russian army is constantly taking more favorable positions and expanding controlled territories in all directions, he said. We are consistently moving forward, achieving the stated goals of the special operation. Russia says its forces are now pressing in the entire east, looking to encircle the Ukrainians in Avdivka, increasingly laying waste to that city as well, Ukrainian authorities still operating their show. We've been bringing humanitarian aid and food here for a long time, he says. People have already left. I hope there were no casualties. This is what Avdivka looks like. There's nothing here. Kiev says the Russian army is suffering catastrophic losses during their assaults, but Ukraine's military also acknowledges their own large-scale counteroffensive started this summer has essentially stalled. A situation compounded by severe ammo shortages. Ukraine desperately hoping Congress will end its impasse and green light further U.S. military aid after months of delays. 
Ukraine's top general in a rare press conference says he's confident the assistance will come and that on the whole, foreign military help for Ukraine has made a huge difference. We had rather ambitious goals in 2023, he says. I was not disappointed by the level of assistance in 2023. Of course, it was not everything, but allowed us to conduct confident military operations. While gains on the ground remain incremental for both sides, the air war continues. Russian missiles and drones striking in Kherson and in Odessa, killing two people. And Moscow now admits Kiev's air force managed to strike a large Russian landing ship, but only vaguely says the vessel suffered damage. Ukraine, though, claims the ship and its cargo were completely destroyed. Footage on air now is impressive indeed, the Air Force spokesman says. A warship was destroyed, most likely a warship with a set of ammunition, powerful ammo. A key strike for Ukraine, but on the front lines, the war grinds on in the harsh Eastern European winter. Little territory changing hands, but many soldiers on both sides killed and wounded. From Plekin, CNN, Berlin. And thanks to CNN's Fred Pleitkin for that report. Ahead here on the Situation Room, what is being hailed as a miracle survival in Indiana? A man who was trapped in his crashed pickup truck survived off of rainwater for nearly a week before his unlikely rescue. We'll share his story next. An Indiana man who was trapped in his pickup truck for nearly a week has now been rescued. He was discovered by a creek near a major highway after a crash. He was pinned in his car and unable to reach his phone. CNN's Athena Jones has more on his incredible story of how he survived. Quite frankly, it's, it's a miracle that he's alive. Matt Ream found alive in his mangled truck six days after a crash that left him trapped. The wreckage, under a bridge of Interstate 94 a mile east of the town of Portage, was not visible from the road. Fortunately for Reem, Mario Garcia and his son-in-law, Nevardo de la Torre, were out scouting locations for fishing near a creek Tuesday when they spotted something shiny. It caught our curiosity. I looked inside and moved the white airbag, and uh, he, th there was a body in there. And uh, I went to touch it, and he turned around. And that just, it, it almost killed me there because it, it was kind of shocking. But uh, he was alive and he was very happy to see us. The badly injured man later telling authorities he had not been able to reach his cell phone to call for help. He mentioned he had been there for since last Wednesday. So uh, he's been there for a while. And he says uh, he tried yelling and screaming, but nobody would hear him. It was just quiet, just the sound of the water. Authorities closed the westbound lanes of I-94 near the site Tuesday afternoon while crews worked to free Reem. He was transported to the hospital by helicopter. It is not clear what caused the crash, but police say it appears Reem was driving westbound and ran off the road, traveling along the grass shoulder before going airborne down into the creek, where authorities believe his car rolled over several times and landed under the bridge, where it was partially submerged. I don't see any way somebody could have seen him. It was just a, a, a very fortunate that we've seen through the cracks of the woods the shiny of the, of the wreck and curiosity that took us over there. This is a miracle that this gentleman is alive today and that these two um, gentlemen just happen to be on that creek today. Another lucky break? Relatively mild weather. Temperatures in Porter County since December 21st ran from a high of 59 degrees to a low of 29. We've been lucky enough here this Christmas season that our temperatures have been, as you all know, above normal. 
Um, so that was working in this individual's favor. It's cold tonight, and uh, I don't believe that he would have made it through, through, the, through the night tonight. Reem has several broken bones and injuries to his legs that could require surgery, according to his labor union, and a GoFundMe page set up to help with the cost of his covering. We're glad we, we got him the help he needed. A happy ending made possible by two men who were in the right place at the right time. For me, it was the first time going there. So, like, it was just, uh, we were put there for a reason. Reem is listed in critical condition at a hospital in South Bend. Police say it took officials from two fire departments quite a bit of time to extricate him from the vehicle. And Mario Garcia, one of the fishermen, said he was pinned in very, very tightly and that he told uh, Garcia that he had almost lost all hope. Fortunately, he was found and saved. Caitlin? Just amazing how they were able to, to just randomly see him. Athena Jones, thank you for that, that great story and sharing that with us. Coming up here on the Situation Room, a CNN investigation, federal officials rescuing more than a hundred dogs, all part of this major crackdown on dog fighting rings. Tonight, a CNN investigation goes inside the shadowy world of dog fighting. Federal agents in South Carolina recently seized 120 fighting dogs in just a single day saving their lives as part of a crackdown on these dogfighting rings that are happening inside the United States. CNN's Isabel Rosales rode along with officials as they raided the homes of those suspects. I do want to give you a warning before you see her report. This does include images of injured fighting dogs. Some viewers may find it disturbing. It's pitch black outside a South Carolina church. At the ready are dozens of armed law enforcement officers. Today, they're seizing fighting dogs. Behind them? I'm definitely anxious. I'm always anxious to see the dogs. We ride along with the federal prosecutor overseeing the criminal case. It's heartbreaking. I get very emotional. Emotional because of how vicious dogfighting is. Made all the more clear in court documents. Dogs who have been fought may have scars, puncture wounds, swollen faces, or mangled ears. In one case, prosecutors say an owner killed his dog by hanging it. And authorities found this contraption made from jumper cables, allegedly used to electrocute dogs, inside the home of a Pentagon employee. This CNN exclusive video, evidence from a close case, shows two dogs getting ready to fight. The illegal sport has spiked federal interest. Last year, officials seized roughly 400 dogs from suspected fighting rings, more than in any other year since at least 2007, according to a CNN review of civil forfeitures. Jane Taylor tells me she was a lifelong narcotics prosecutor until she first saw the injuries on fighting dogs. I had a case where um, we had a wiretap and we were listening to the calls of the individuals involved in drugs and we started hearing a lot of conversations about dogs and dog fighting. We arrive at the first of five homes. What sort of things are you on the lookout for when you enter a property? I'm looking at the conditions of the dogs themselves. I'm looking for any sort of scarring, any fresh wounds. And then I'm also looking for what I'll call dog fighting paraphernalia. Like these treadmills to make the dogs stronger and faster. And something called spring poles, where the dogs are used to jump up and they latch on it. It's supposed to strengthen their jaws. Experts say dogs are often tied down with heavy chains and weighted collars to increase their strength. 
Some dogfighters inject their animals with drugs or vitamins to increase aggression. And before a big fight, some fighting dogs are starved to keep them in their weight class like a boxer. Tucked away in this wooded area, federal agents find the first of roughly 120 pit bulls that would be seized in what will turn out to be South Carolina's second largest single-day seizure of fighting dogs ever, say investigators. They're photographed and loaded into trailers to get medical care and shelter. When we go onto a property, they'll wag their tail because they haven't had any interaction, I mean, friendly interaction. Major Frank O'Neill with the South Carolina State Law Enforcement Division. They've been abused either by the owner and a, a fighting dog. It's just, it breaks your heart. People are making a lot of money off of this. Um, my opinion, even a dollar is too much to be making money off of this. And there are plenty of ways to get paid. According to court documents in South Carolina, participants pay $200,000 to have their animals fight against a top dog. Another fighting dog won over $50,000. The owner of a champion dog can make even more money on semen, stud fees, and puppies. Many of them are drug traffickers because they have to fund gambling of, of these dogs. And these dogs are very expensive. They're going to have weapons. And if we haven't already arrested them, um, the chances are we will arrest them in another arena. Inside this home, officers find several guns. The homeowner declined to speak with CNN. Federal agents pack up and head to the next house. We're about 20 minutes out. They say it is about 12 dogs. Dogfighting became a felony at the federal level back in 2007. The maximum sentence a suspect can face is five years in federal prison. Meanwhile, for the animals, experts say that some dogs are too aggressive to rehabilitate, but others can be adopted and get a second chance at life. Isabel Rosales, CNN, Atlanta. A disturbing but important report, Isabel Rosales. Thank you for that. Coming up here on The Situation Room, Michigan's Supreme Court has just handed former President Donald Trump a win. We'll break down the new ruling on his ballot eligibility and what it means for what the Supreme Court could do next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Happening now, Donald Trump remains on the GOP primary ballot in Michigan after the state Supreme Court rejected a bid to disqualify him under the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. Will this ruling have any impact on Trump's legal fight against his ballot ban in Colorado? Also this hour, we're standing by for a readout on critical talks that just ended between Biden cabinet officials and the president of Mexico. Did they reach any new agreement on ways to ease the surge of migrants into the U.S. as the problem weighs not only on border cities, but also the White House? Also, we're following these disturbing, disturbing new images out of Gaza. Palestinian men and at least two boys apparently stripped down to their underwear while being detained by the Israeli military. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. Wolf Blitzer is off today. I'm Caitlin Collins, and you're in the Situation Room.
Our top story this hour, a new ruling in the multi-state effort that is underway to disqualify Donald Trump from running for president again. Michigan Supreme Court now weighing in, rejecting an attempt in that state to bar Trump from the primary ballot. CNN's justice correspondent Jessica Schneider has been going over this decision. Jessica, what reason did the Michigan High Court give for outright rejecting this 14th Amendment related case? Yeah, you know, Caitlin, the state Supreme Court really tossed this aside on procedural grounds rather getting to the, than getting to the merits. They said they just didn't have the power to decide that question of whether <laughs> Trump should be on the ballot because the case raised political questions. And in this very short opinion, they also agreed with the lower court that the Secretary of State in Michigan just didn't have the authority authority to determine who was eligible to be on or off the primary ballot. So this was, in a sense, a win for Trump, a minor win, though, since Michigan's highest court really didn't go to the merits. So we're expecting, though, that Trump's team will appeal. Remember that Colorado decision last week that took him off the ballot there? His team, Trump's team, needs to appeal by January 4th to keep him on the primary ballot. That's determined on January 5th. And eventually, Caitlin, the U.S. Supreme Court really could take up this dicey issue of whether the 14th Amendment's insurrection ban would exclude Donald Trump from the general election ballot. But we're a little ways off from that. Yeah, that's still a, a big question. But when it comes to this state by state effort, I mean, there is another one that we are waiting on a ruling that yeah. could come at any moment from Maine and the secretary of state there. But today we saw Trump's attorneys asking the secretary of state to recuse herself because of some social media posts that, that she had made. Uh, what's the likelihood of that? Is there any real reality to the fact that 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 could happen or is it just kind of bluster from the Trump team? Yeah, it's um, it probably won't happen. She probably won't recuse herself. They're claiming, look, they're saying this isn't a stunt. We just discovered some of the secretary of state's comments on social media that she had made after January 6th, saying that, th that she was negative about Trump or his actions. So the way this is all played out is that earlier this month, the secretary of state had a hearing on whether Trump should be removed from the ballot. She has said she'll be issuing her decision at some point this week. But just today, Trump's legal team asked her to recuse herself because of those comments they say that they found, where she's, in one of them at least, condemning the January 6th Capitol attack, in another one speaking out against Trump's acquittal after his impeachment proceedings. So the secretary of state, Caitlin in Maine, has made no comment about this. It's likely she won't recuse, that her ruling probably will come soon. But again, she was the one who administered this hearing. So it's likely that whatever she does decide would probably get appealed to the courts in that state. Yeah, and she makes the decision about whether or not she recuses yeah. herself. So it doesn't seem likely. But and Jessica, in the other developments that we are tracking when it comes to, to Trump's legal issues, there's also a new filing from Jack Smith in the 2020 election subversion case. That's the federal case happening in Washington, D.C. What is the special counsel's team saying in this new filing today? So they're really trying to get ahead, Caitlin, of Trump's, as we know, penchant for making comments about his court cases. What they're asking is the trial court here in D.C. to prohibit him from saying any number of things, like suggesting the Biden administration directed the case against him for political reasons. This filing, Caitlin, is actually notable because, you know, all of the proceedings here have been paused in this case. And Jack Smith, he continues to file on this, despite the fact that that March 4th start date to this trial probably actually won't go forward because of the appeals process playing out. But Jack Smith continues to file in court, hoping perhaps that March 4th will be the trial date, although it's probably not likely. Caitlin. 
yeah, we'll wait to see what happens there. Jessica Schneider, thank you for that. I want to break down all of these developments that are happening today with our legal and our political experts who are here. Michael Moore, let me start with you with, with what Jessica started with there in her report, which is this decision by the Michigan State Supreme Court, you know, declining to hear this challenge to, to Trump being on the primary ballot there, following that blockbuster decision that we saw happen in Colorado last week. What is your, your read on, on what Michigan decided here, the Supreme Court, in effect, by, by saying we're going to stick with what the appeals court has ruled here? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to be with all of you. And I, and I wasn't surprised by the Michigan case. I mean, really what the court said is that it was a procedural issue, that they were not in a place and they were not the arbiters to decide who could and could not be placed on a primary ballot. That was something up to the political parties and the political process as they went through. And that this case was a little different uh, because no one had declared their eligibility to be a candidate on that primary ballot. And so they passed on that. But the importance, I think, uh, goes deeper into the likelihood that the Supreme Court takes this up and takes a good look at it. And the reason that we have a case like this before the Supreme Court, and that is so that there could be some uniformity across the different jurisdictions. You can't have a, somebody not eligible in Texas under this amendment, but yet they are eligible in some other state. And that uh, the Supreme Court will get to that uh, in, in short order, I think. Well, and Tom Dupree, on what the Supreme Court's going to be getting to, I mean, uh, what we're basically the Trump legal team has three days left, I think, to to file this appeal on the Colorado decision. They could do it tomorrow, Friday or, or Tuesday, I believe. And they are expected to do that. But when they do that, how does this Michigan decision factor into how the Supreme Court looks at this? Yeah, I'm not sure the Michigan decision is going to have a huge impact one way or the other, Caitlin. I think the Supreme Court was very likely to take the Colorado case even before the Michigan Supreme Court did what it did today. I will say, though, that the Michigan Supreme Court decision, I think, underscores that this Colorado decision really is an outlier. You'll recall that many state Supreme Courts across the country had previously rejected this theory up until the Colorado Supreme Court ruled. The Michigan court now has just followed in the footsteps of all those pre-Colorado courts. So at the end of the day, I don't think it has a huge impact on the Supreme Court's willingness and likelihood to take the case. I think the Supreme Court is very likely to grant Trump's appeal. I think they're very likely to decide this case. And I think they're very likely to overrule the Colorado Supreme Court. Hmm. Well, we'll wait to see what, what they decide. I mean, Kristen Holmes, we're watching all of this. Trump's team is obviously touting what happened to Michigan as a victory. Do they view these efforts to boot Trump from, from the ballots, not just in Michigan and Colorado and Maine, as helpful to them? Or what are they saying privately about this? Well, Caitlin, privately, they, this is one of the legal issues that they're the least worried about. And as Tom mentioned, you know, we had seen the, the courts reject these cases in a number of states before we even got to Colorado, Arizona, Minnesota, New Hampshire. So the Colorado was actually surprising to many of them. They thought, if anything, that it would be ruled against Trump in a lower court and then they'd appeal to the higher court. They were surprised, at least some of them, that it ended up being that the Supreme Court of Colorado ruled against against Donald Trump. But while Tom says in these cases might not have any impact on one another, to the layman who's not well-versed in the law, they are potentially linked. And that's what Donald Trump's team is going to try to do, to show any way that they can that the Colorado ruling is an outlier. And this is the statement that we heard from Donald Trump and his team. They wrote, the Michigan Supreme Court has strongly and rightfully denied the desperate Democratic attempt to take the leading candidate in the 2024 presidential election, me, off the ballot in the great state of Michigan. But again, you know, 
they were not super concerned about this as far as legal battles that Donald Trump is facing. This is one they think in the end that he will end up being the ballot in all on, on the ballot in all of these states. Oh, I mean, Michael, to that point, there are a lot of other legal issues that Trump's team has to be worried about. I think when you're ranking them, this likely does not go at the top, as Kristen noted there. And on that, you know, we saw Jack Smith's team today. Even though this federal case is basically completely on pause right now, they're still f- issuing new filings, trying to really set the parameters for his trial in Washington. This is the on the efforts to overturn the election. They seem to have a concern that, that Trump will be able to convince jurors he and his legal team to ignore the facts, to to acquit him here because they disagree with the prosecution, not because of any legal standard. What did you make of that filing that came out today? Yeah, th- th- these are typically called motions in limine, which simply means that they're asking the court for an advanced ruling so that extraneous and irrelevant evidence is presented to the jury to muddy the water, so to speak, during the trial. And so this pre-hearing or pre-trial filing uh, eliminates problems like that are made during an opening statement by Trump's lawyers or arguments that may be made or presented uh, in statements to the jury pool during the Vordire process. And so all those things are covered in this motion. And so it, it, it basically says, look, Judge, let's let's make him talk about the relevant evidence. Let's not talk about, you know, the, the, the little green men on the moon, so to speak. And, and that's that's the reason that you have it is to keep the trial focused. But to get some advanced ruling so that during the course of the trial, you can not just object, but you can remind the judge, you know, judge, you recall you've already addressed this. Would you please admonish him to not continue to talk about it? This has been the subject of a pretrial ruling. So these are standard type motions. You expect a prosecutor to file them. It is a little unusual that during this stay period, during the time that things have kind of stopped pending some appeal, that we're continuing to see the Jack Smith motions. I think that's probably because they want to keep this at the forefront uh, and also show the the voter and I think generally the, the, the American people that they're continuing to work, uh, even as they're asking the court to move ahead expeditiously. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, Trump responded by attacking Jack Smith for that new sure. filing. Right. Michael Moore, Tom Dupree, Kristen Holmes, thank you for that reporting, that analysis. Just ahead here on Situation Room, on the Situation Room, we're going to go live to the southern border for the latest on the migrant surge, the crisis and the talks that are happening between the U.S. and Mexico. They just wrapped up moments ago. Urgent talks on the migrant crisis at the southern border have just wrapped up in Mexico City tonight. The U.S. Secretary of State and the Homeland Security Secretary both there pressing the president of Mexico to help the problem that is weighing not only on border towns, but also on the White House amid ahead of a presidential election year. I want to check in with CNN's Rosa Flores, who is at the southern border. Rosa, obviously, we're waiting to get an official readout of whether officials feel that, that real progress was made here. But what have you heard about the goals going into these talks, what they were hoping to achieve with these in-person, face-to-face meetings? Well, Caitlin, the short answer is the United States is hoping that Mexico stems the flow of migration. We were expecting U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken to ask Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador to uh, stop migrants, in essence, from coming north. And, and all of that is code for upping enforcement on the Mexican side of the border. And look, we've seen this before whenever there, there's been prior surges and representatives of the United States go to Mexico and have these talks with the Mexican president, whoever is in office. Uh, soon after that, 
a lot of the times we see upped enforcement. Mexico's National Guard all, all of a sudden showing up on the northern border of their country. And also sometimes Mexico ups their deportation flights. We've seen that in, during prior surges as well. Mexico will send deportation flights and or uh, flights or buses from the, their northern border to either central Mexico or their southern border. We're also expecting the United States to ask Mexico to control the railways. And what that means is for Mexico to establish checkpoints in their freight rail system. And, and Caitlin, we've seen this. Migrants use what's called La Bestia or the freight rail system in Mexico to travel very quickly from the southern, uh, from southern Mexico to northern Mexico. That's why a lot of the times we see very large groups of thousands of migrants arriving at one point in time in areas like Eagle Pass, for example. It's because of those railways. So the, the United States was expecting to be asking Mexico to install checkpoints to control their freight rail system so that that could stem the flow of migrants. Caitlin? Yeah, Rosa Flores, serious uh, issues underway. A big question about what this looks like. What you can see here is Secretary Blinken. He was in the room for these talks. He is now departing Mexico. What was this one-day trip to go and have those critical conversations? We'll wait to hear from officials inside the White House whether or not they feel any progress was made there. Rosa Flores, thank you for that report. And joining me now is Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Mich Michigan. Congresswoman, given this is such a critical issue, not just from the humanitarian perspective, but also, you know, when you look at it from a political uh, political lens ahead of a presidential election year, it's going to be a tough issue for the White House. They know that. That's why they're dispatching top aides to Mexico. I think the question is, does, does a meeting like today do enough to, to help alleviate this? And how do you want to see President Biden handle this issue? Well, Caitlin, we're going to have to wait and see what the Secretary of State reports to us happened in these conversations and if progress has been made. And as uh, reported, uh, we've had surges in during Republican presidents, during Democratic presidents. We have seen some action happen. When we've seen pictures at the border the last few days, it clearly reinforces that we have a crisis. This is a tough issue. It has not been dealt with for decades. We've needed comprehensive immigration reform for decades. Because it's tough, it never gets resolved. And I, I think President Biden is trying to show some leadership and we are going to have to deal with this and we cannot deal with it as Republicans or Democrats. We're going to have to deal with it as a Congress, come together and find solutions and get something done. Yeah, I know there's major concerns in Michigan about whether or not it could affect races that are there down the ballot in 2024. I do want to ask you, given it's your state Supreme Court that upheld this appeals court decision that Donald Trump can stay on the primary ballot in Michigan, this development that we found out today, do you believe that was the right call? Look, it was the court's decision. It's a complicated decision, unless you're somebody that really studies the nitty gritty, which I have because I've been trying to change presidential primary laws for uh, almost 40 years with Carl Levin. Um, but it, 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 each state has its own laws about who is on their primary ballot. It's what doesn't, Michigan doesn't require that they be qualified to be uh, a candidate or elected in the general election. Uh, I have a lot of mixed feelings about all of this and about what uh, the role that Donald Trump played in January 6th. Uh, but I also hope 
and want to see the voters make the decision. I think there's enough division in this country, enough lack of trust in institutions that uh, I hope the American people are really going to pay attention to what's at stake during this next year's election and that the true election happened on Election Day. And I think that while I think there are constitutional issues that are valid, I think we need to worry about the distrust, the division we're seeing in this country right now, as I keep saying. So it sounds like you, you do think it was the right call. And just speaking of the former president, I was looking at his Truth Social account just a few hours ago, and he lashed out at you after you had told CNN that you thought the message that he had posted on Christmas Day, a lengthy one, there are multiple, but in short, he told his political rivals to rot in hell. And, and you called that a pathetic message from a, a former president. And in this latest post, you know, he's going back to what you know is a very familiar line of attack, going after the death of your husband, his funeral honors. He's calling you a loser in all caps in this post. I just want to give you a chance to, to respond to that, if you wish. I'm going to say what we got to treat each other with dignity and respect. Civility matters. Words have consequences. We're in a holiday right now that so many people have had a tough, hard year. We need some calm, some love, some hope, not more negative words with division. And I think each and every one of us has a responsibility to stand up and ask everybody to treat each other with that respect and dignity. And I'm going to, as you say, he goes back to my late husband, who was a giant, a great man who touched many things. And he earned everything he got at his funeral when he was buried. It was Nancy Pelosi and actually Mitch McConnell and others that helped arrange some of the things. But I'm going to tell you two things. I remember I did not call Donald Trump. He called me. And I remember his kind words that day. I was grateful that he lowered the flags. And I remember that act of kindness. And I choose to remember it as an act of kindness and a touching thing at a very hard time. And maybe all of us could remember that just having empathy and compassion and a little kindness will make everybody's day a little better. And, and even, you know, despite his attack, do you, you still stand by, I assume, your initial assessment that that message about his political rivals rotting in hell uh, was pathetic? Well, I, why, why would you use that kind of language on Christmas Day? This is a man that was a leader of this country and wants to be a leader again. Let's instill hope, civility, love, support, kindness, compassion, a few other words than rot in hell on Christmas Day. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, as always, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Coming up here on The Situation Room, we are seeing disturbing new video out of Gaza. It apparently seems to show Palestinian men, young boys also, in Gaza who have been stripped to their underwear as they're being detained by the IDF. We've asked for comment. We'll give you a report on that right after this. Tonight, CNN has new video from Gaza, which seems to show Palestinian men and at least two young boys who have been detained by the IDF stripped down to their underwear. I want to warn our viewers, you might find these images disturbing. 
But as we're learning more about them, I want to bring in CNN's senior international correspondent, Will Ripley, who is joining us live from Tel Aviv. Will, what are we hearing, if anything, from Israeli officials about these new images? Well, they're not answering our questions about why these two children were detained, but we know in the past they say that they have to strip down people to look for explosives, and they've even found explosive vests, they say, modified for children to wear. But the situation in Gaza for children goes well beyond this video. It is devastating. Smoke rises over southern Gaza, haunting from a distance, horrifying up close. Video obtained by CNN showing a sidewalk covered in blood and bodies. Men, women, children, at least 20 dead from yet another Israeli airstrike, this time near a hospital, the Hamas-controlled health ministry says. CNN is not able to independently verify the staggering death toll, around 21,000 and rising. The wounded rushed to Al-Amal Hospital, one of a handful still operating. In the parking lot, pandemonium. Doctors and nurses, already overwhelmed, scramble to save lives. An international team of surgeons gaining access to emergency rooms on life support. Doctors warn supplies are running dangerously low, severely limiting treatment of trauma patients, some dying as they wait for urgent care. Civilian casualties climbing fast, more than 55,000 injured since October 7th, the Hamas health ministry says. Inside a crowded medical tent in Jabalia, Palestinian Red Crescent medics treating a tidal wave of patients. <laughs> Wounded women and children, many injuries, horrific. <laughs> the pile of body bags growing by the hour. At times, the dead seem to outnumber the living. Naval ships comb the coast as drones hover overhead, documenting the destruction, explosion after explosion. The IDF targeting tunnels used by Hamas fighters, hitting both military and civilian infrastructure. The Israeli offensive in Gaza showing no signs of easing up. Israel's goal to root out Hamas leaders. An edited video circulating on social media appears to show Palestinian men and at least two children detained, stripped by the Israel Defense Forces in a stadium in northern Gaza. The fighting is fierce. The offensive expected to transition into a slower-intensity mobile campaign. Soon, Israel says, the question haunting Israeli leaders, will the change in strategy be effective? Will it neutralize Hamas's military power? Israeli artillery hitting a UN-run school in central Gaza, leaving holes in the walls, blood on the floors, next to the sleeping mats of displaced families. At this school in Rafah, some of those families crowd into classrooms sharing what little food and water they have. Supplies are running low after 10 long weeks of war. The Palestinian prime minister says Israel is starving people to death. This teacher's lesson, a welcome distraction for children, surrounded by suffering and death, trying to find some semblance of a normal life. But a normal life seems so far off for those who have lived through every single day of this war, which is now in its 80th day. And Caitlin, some experts are saying that communities in Gaza hardest hit by this could take decades to recover.
Yeah, especially for the trauma these children, those who survive, have been through. Will Ripley, thank you for that report. And for more on this, I want to bring in Sari Bashi, who is the program director for Human Rights Watch. Sari, I just first want what to see what you think, what your assessment is of this video that we, we have now. It's Palestinian men and at least two children who have been detained in Gaza. As Will Ripley noted there, we have asked the IDF for comment on, on the two children who are seen here. Uh, and he noted in the past, they say that they've detained them with people who have suspected ties to Hamas. What do you make of this video, though? We have deep concerns over the way the Israeli military is treating detainees in Gaza. The laws of war require a warring party to treat all, det all detainees humanely. In the past, we've seen the Israeli military actually post videos of men in their underwear, which constitutes an outrage on their personal dignity. It's actually a war crime. In this case, while there is authority to strip people temporarily to check if they have weapons. Once you've checked, you let them get dressed. You don't leave them without clothing, in particular in front of women. So we, we, would, we would suggest that the Israeli military, no matter what it suspects detainees of having done, abide by the law, which requires humane treatment. So when you see these videos, I mean, there are still a lot of questions I should note about the longevity of these videos, how long these detainees are, have been stripped. But, but the two children specifically, I, I think I'm curious your thoughts on that, given, you know, we hear from the IDF that they say that they're worried about explosives. That's why they do strip them down to their underwear. But what do you make of the two children who are included here? And also, if there are questions here, what that could say about Hamas and the claims that they, that they use children and civilians as shields. So I, I don't have information about those two children or about any of the detainees. I don't know what it is they're suspected of doing. What I can say is that when you detain children, you have to be particularly conscious of respecting their rights and treating them in a way that's appropriate to, to children. So again, if you want to temporarily check them, you can do that. But leaving them unclothed, um, we don't know for how long. And um, I'm also concerned about the surfacing of this video. So um, in the past, on at least two occasions, the Israeli military has actually posted these videos on social media, which is humiliating. And in this case, um, uh, again, there seem to be these videos surfacing from accounts that are affiliated with the Israeli authorities. Um, so I, I, I am concerned that these videos are being used to humiliate detainees. And that is, that is well beyond what the law permits. In particular for children, at all times, children's rights must be protected, whatever it is they are being accused of having done. Yeah, a lot of questions about those two children in particular. If we get comment from the IDF, we will share it with you and with our viewers. Sorry, Bashi, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Just ahead, CNN is also getting an exclusive look at a new ad from Chris Christie directly pushing back at those calls for him news. to drop out of the race. You're going to want to see this ad. We'll show it to you right after a quick break. Tonight, Republican 2024 candidate Chris Christie responding to those calls from people who believe that he should drop out of the presidential race. CNN getting an exclusive look at that ad here tonight. Eva McKen is in New Hampshire with details. Eva, 
Uh, obviously, these calls have only been ramping up as we are getting closer to what is happening in New Hampshire after uh, the Iowa caucuses, the primary there. What is Chris Christie saying to, to these people who say that he should get out of the 2024 race? You know, Caitlin, it's telling that he feels the need to address these concerns directly. And what it speaks to is the anxiety among some Republicans to really coalesce around a single Trump alternative as we get into these closing weeks here before these pivotal contests in Iowa and New Hampshire. But in true Christie form, he's saying he's not going anywhere, that he is the only candidate in this contest, in his estimation, that is willing to go after Trump directly. Let's listen. Some people say I should drop out of this race. Really? I'm the only one saying Donald Trump is a liar. He pits Americans against each other. His Christmas message to anyone who disagrees with him? Rotten hell. He caused a riot on Capitol Hill. He'll burn America to the ground to help himself. Every Republican leader says that in private. I'm the only one saying it in public. What kind of president do we want? A liar or someone who's got the guts to tell the truth? So Christie, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, many of the candidates have very aggressive uh, ground games here in New Hampshire. We'll have to see if Haley on her way here to northern New Hampshire this evening, a big, bit of fog here delaying her, uh, Caitlin. But we'll have to see if she addresses this directly. She tends not to go after the other candidates directly. Core to her message is really that she is a new generation of leadership. And that is something that seems to be resonating with her supporters here. You speak to them, some of them say that they voted for Trump in 2016, voted for Biden in 2020, but are ready to vote for a new candidate entirely in 2024. Caitlin? Eva McKend in New Hampshire, stay warm. Thank you for that. I want to bring in CNN political commentators, Jamal Simmons and Alice Stewart. Alice, this is a seven-figure ad by, we are told, by Chris Christie, where he's pushing back on people who say that, that he should get out of the race if Republicans truly don't want Donald Trump to be the nominee. What do you make of this new ad tonight? Well, good for him. Look, no one's uh, cast a vote. We haven't even started the race to, to 270 yet. And uh, I think we need to hear from the voters before people start saying uh, who should drop out of the race. And I think that will happen as we get to Iowa and New Hampshire. But good for him. I, I just reached out to the governor and he said, look, the ad really speaks for itself. What he's been saying all along is that uh, Donald Trump is a liar. Uh, he said in the past he is unfit and calling out uh, Republicans, specifically Republican challengers in this race, who uh, will say privately that they feel Donald Trump is a threat to democracy, but are uh, willing to say it publicly. So uh, this is true to form for what uh, Governor Christie has been in this race for, really pushing it to Donald Trump for what he sees as a threat to democracy and being able to call it out. How much will that message resonate in terms of uh, primary voters and caucus goers? Uh, we'll certainly see in a couple weeks, but uh, you got to hand it to Christie. He has been consistent on this issue and certainly is not backing down. Well, Jamal Simmons, I mean, the argument from anti-Trump Republicans who don't want him to be the GOP nominee because they believe he could lose to, to President Biden, who obviously you used to work for inside the White House, is that if Chris Christie stays in the race, you know, he detracts support from people like Nikki Haley. If he got out of the race, that support would likely go to someone like a Nikki Haley, obviously not Donald Trump if they're supporting Chris Christie. Uh, is it true that the Biden White House, as Nikki Haley has been arguing, would be more worried about a Nikki Haley as the Republican nominee, that she would be more electable? 
Listen, it's absolutely true that Nikki Haley is the best political athlete running on the Republican side. I mean, she is a, just a much better athlete in terms of how she performs, um, the ability to communicate with people. Here's the thing. She's running in a MAGA party. She's got to adopt MAGA positions. She still won't even take Donald Trump on on most of the positions that he has. It's just a new um, generation of leadership call that it is she's trying to make on people. So I think the Biden White House is, sure, they... Donald Trump is an easier case because you already know what you're running against. You've already got it all basically in the can. With Nikki Haley, you've got to come up with some new plays, but she's still running the same old MAGA uh, playbook. And that's not going to be one that sells the American public, I think. Well, Alice, I mean, it is true that, that people like Chris Christie and others have said, you know, these other Republican candidates aren't doing enough to call out Donald Trump. As the New York Times puts it today, they're saying that her bold strategy to beat Trump is to play it safe. But in today's Republican Party, can you be an outright Trump critic? Can you be as critical as Chris Christie is and have a successful endgame? Well, we all know the reality of the lay of the land is you have to be uh, subtle about it, but you also have to be uh, vocal about it as well. You have to make sure and and deliver the punch uh, directly to Trump, but not do it in a way that's going to alienate his base, because there are some former Trump supporters that are looking to turn the page and move elsewhere, and someone like a Nikki Haley is a good alternative. As, as Jamal said, and as we've said, she is a younger generation leader looking for a more optimistic vision. And look, I think she has uh, done uh, quite well in terms of taking it to Trump. She has uh, gone after him for adding to the debt. She's gone after him for uh, some of his positions on foreign policy and the fact that he's been a loser. Her big ace in the hole right now is New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who I'm sure we'll hear from tonight. I spoke with him on the radio this morning, and he said, look, Nikki Haley is is perfect, certainly for New Hampshire, live free or die state. She's about individual uh, responsibility and reducing government. But uh, he says she and he are going to show that Donald Trump is is uh, has been a liar. He has been a loser, did not build the wall and certainly added to the debt. So we're going to see that. Alice Stewart and Jamal Caitlin, Simmons. You know, um, Jamal, go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to say, you know, they, have, they got this ad that's up, you know, that's running, and, and they're, they placed it in Boston, which means they're going after kind of independents, more moderate Republicans who commute basically to southern New Hampshire, back and forth to work. And I think that tells you they don't have necessarily the voters they need in the Trump base. And the question is, are there enough of those independents and moderate Republicans to make up the 15 or 20 point difference she has with the former president? Yeah, it's a legitimate question. We've seen how, how, how well Trump is polling there in New Hampshire. Jamal Simmons, Al Stewart, thank you both. We'll be back in just a moment. This just into the Situation Room, North Korean state media reporting that Kim Jong-un is instructing his country's army and defense sector to accelerate war preparations in response to moves made by the United States. I'm joined now by CNN Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman, Oren, what exactly is the North Korean dictator saying? I mean, what does this mean for for what is about to change potentially, if anything? Caitlin, it's not just the rhetoric we're seeing from North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. It's also the recent tests we've seen from his intercontinental ballistic missile program. First, according to North Korean state media, Kim Jong-un ordered, and I'll quote here, the munitions industry, nuclear weapons, and civil defense sectors to further accelerate the war preparations due to the anti-North Korean confrontation moves of the U.S. and its vassal forces unprecedented in history. In that case, vassal forces means South Korea coming from Kim Jong-un there. So he is pushing his weapons programs and his nuclear programs even further 
as he orders this uh, to accelerate here in the face of what he accuses the U.S. of doing, of expanding its own efforts in the region. It's worth noting that just 10 days ago, North Korea tested the Hwasong-18 intercontinental ballistic missile. It is the third solid-fuel ICBM test we've seen coming from North Korea this year that also came with a short-range ballistic missile test. So, Caitlin, you can see here Kim Jong-un seeing the U.S. working with South Korea and Japan. He is pushing his country even harder as well. Warren Lieberman, I know you'll stay on top of it from the Pentagon. Thank you very much for that report. Coming up here, Taylor Swift's epic year and just what it means financially. We'll break it all down right after this. Whether you love her, hate her, which I'm not sure how you could, or if you're just indifferent, you know all too well Taylor Swift had a hugely successful 2023. CNN's Anna Stewart reports on just how successful the year was for her. She's certainly not the anti-hero of 2023. In fact, she's Time Person of the Year. Even in Taylor Swift's wildest dreams, it would be hard to imagine greater success or bigger revenues. Not one, but three best-selling albums. They're not all exactly new. 1989 and Speak Now were re-recorded as Swift continues to reclaim ownership of her music. We're about to go on a little adventure together, and that adventure is going to span 17 years of music. In March, Swift embarked on a record-breaking worldwide tour. It's expected to rake in more than $2 billion in North American ticket sales alone. Swift even helped bail out the box office in a difficult year with a movie version of the Eras Tour concerts. It made $96 million on its opening weekend in the US and Canada. Spotify and Apple Music have both named her Artist of the Year. There isn't an artist uh, on the planet who has achieved so much in a calendar year, and we at Apple Music, we felt the same way. And there was just no denying that, that you know, what she's achieved um, over the last 12 months in my lifetime at least, from a, pro from a productivity and a quality point of view, is sort of unprecedented. Bloomberg says Swift became a billionaire in October, and Swiftfluence spread beyond music this year. The artist was spotted, not on the bleachers, but in a box, as she debuted a new relationship with Kansas City Chiefs player Travis Kels. love story boosted ticket sales and NFL TV ratings. It all comes down to a powerful bond Swift has forged with her fans, using hidden messages and clues known as Easter eggs in songs, performances and social media. Every time she puts anything out, there's a sense of anticipation that surrounds that experience and also the idea that we as fans can be invested in that by uncovering details, moving in different ways. I mean, the, the depth of Easter egg placement is sort of unbelievable. It, it just strengthens that connective tissue between the artist and the fan, which is what this is all about and something that Taylor Swift has been completely dedicated to her whole career. Do you think we have now hit peak Taylor Swift? If Taylor Swift's proven anything, even to people who don't listen to her music, is that she will not stop creating at the highest level. So no, only Taylor will decide um, you know, how and where she moves. And when she comes back, like every other time, 
she'll be dedicated and committed to it. That's one thing I really appreciate about Taylor Swift is when she comes out with a record or a tour, she's all in. The era's tour continues through 2024. So we know all too well that it will probably be another year of Swift success. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. And Aaron Burnett out front starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.